friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. Conversations with Consequences is part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our radio show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or you can just go directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. You'll find us under Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and today on Conversations with Consequences, we are tackling a big subject, the rise and fall of liberalism. We're going straight to the top with Professor Adrian Vermeule. He's the Ralph S. Tyler Jr. Professor of Constitutional Law at Harvard University. He's written nine books, and his last book is out now called Law and Leviathan, Redeeming the Administrative State. And also he will share some ever-profound thoughts on the rise of liberalism. After that, I get to have a conversation with consequences with Dr. Scott Hahn about his new book, It is Right and Just, Why the Future of Civilization Depends on True Religion. In this book, he argues that to answer questions over religious liberty, justice, and peace, we have to first reject the insidious lie perpetuated by secular liberal culture that religion is a private matter. But first, welcome to the show, Professor Vermeule. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real treat for me to have you on the show. When I first started this radio show, I was asked for a wish list of people that I would like to talk to, and you were actually at the top of my list. That's very kind of you. I, I uh, love your content. So. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. And I know you don't give a lot of interviews. It's a real honor for me to have you on. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm usually quite reluctant, but uh, under, under certain conditions, I will. Well, I put a lot of pressure on you, so here you are. <laughs> <laughs> and plus, you know, I'm a friendly. So, Professor, you are you've just recently written a book, and I believe it's coming out next week, and it's called Law and Leviathan: Redeeming the Administrative State. Was this project a long time in coming, and what was the inspiration? It has been a long time in coming, in a sense, because my much of my legal career has been devoted to this question of the legitimacy of the administrative state, and the inspiration is partly negative and partly positive, so let me explain that partly negative is there's a set of people who vehemently and fundamentally critique our system of government as it's evolved, and they want, in some sense, to return to what they take to be the original Constitution. I am not at all persuaded that they are correct about the orig- what the original Constitution says or means, but in any event, putting that point aside, my message to them is that our unwritten Constitution has evolved to a place where um, there's now no question, no realistic possibility of returning to some original written Constitution. So the question is what to make of where we are now. And my, me- my positive message to them and to uh, fellow Catholics who are suspicious of the administrative state. So I understand why you are, but this thing is not going anywhere. The only question is whether um, it is devoted to the common good or not. And part of my project is, in a sense, to redeem or uh, help to baptize the administrative state, if you like, to help um, devote it to, to ends that Catholics can can applaud. You have a co-author on your book, and that's Cass Sunstein. Um, do yes. you do you and uh, Professor Sunstein agree on how the administrative state can be redeemed? I think we have enough of. Uh 
a meeting of the minds, if you like, that we can write the book together. I greatly respect Cass. Of course, I don't agree with him on many things. I think we have a different conception, perhaps, of in what the common good uh, actually consists. But I think both of us have a sense that the way forward for the administrative state is is to regulate itself according to a type of law and a set of legal principles that do conduce to the general welfare rather than to some uh, libertarian view of simply maximizing the autonomy of individuals or something along those lines. So the title of your book is very significant, I think, because you call it Law and Leviathan, and you obviously are referencing Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan. Correct me if I get this wrong. So this is a book which proposed that the government should be a social contract in which man, out of his own self-interest always, hands over a good bit of his liberty in exchange for peace and security. And this results eventually in this massive state that he called the Leviathan. And here, correct me again if I'm wrong, that it also results in the philosophy of liberalism in which the legitimacy of all these human relationships, starting with political but not stopping there, are dependent on whether these relationships are freely chosen and not and chosen through a self-interest of, of each individual person. Does, does that sound about right? Yes, I, I think it does. And I'd say that... Um the Leviathan is a reference both to Hobbes and to the frequent meme or trope that people call our administrative state a Leviathan. And in both cases, my claim is that this enormous unholy creature can in fact be baptized or redeemed in a certain way. The tradition of liberal political theory that in some ways starts with Hobbes and in even more distinctly with Locke is a profoundly anti-Catholic, uh, in my view, tradition of political theory. And there's no question that the administrative state that's been called into being by the evolution of our institutions can and has been used for purposes that Catholics should find extremely objectionable. The Little Sisters of the Poor being a long-running horror show in this regard. But again, the point is that it's not going anywhere. And what has to happen is that Catholics need to uh, baptize it from within, as it were, and try to recall it to principles of right ordering. So you're a constitutional lawyer, and you bring up the Little Sisters of the Poor. In another recent case in Bostock, the Supreme Court decided that the Constitution protects individual liberty, individual choice, to the extent of an individual deciding against all material facts or even science that he or she can be of the opposite sex. In other words, that the individual is unfettered from all the basic facts of even nature. And also, for instance, in Roe, the court found that individual liberty extends to a woman choosing to end the life of her own child. The court seems to be enshrining a liberal autonomy-based conception of rights into our entire society. Do you agree with that? And what exactly do you propose instead? Absolutely, that's correct. Uh, just one technical point is that Bostock is actually a statutory case, not a constitutional case. Okay. But it rests on, in my view, on principles that are very similar to the principles that we've seen from the Supreme Court in the constitutional cases you mentioned. It's fundamentally this principle from John Stuart Mill that maximizing the liberty of all subject to the like liberty of others is the goal of sort of constitutional policy, as it were. And I think that's deeply objectionable for all the reasons the church teaches. It does 
doesn't follow, however, that we shouldn't have a conception of rights. So Father Dominic Legg from the um, Thomistic Institute in Washington has a wonderful paper on how we mustn't throw out the baby with the bathwater and think there's no such thing as an idea of, of, of right in the Catholic tradition. It's just it's defined differently. Right is based on use or justice, giving to each person their due. And right is that which allocated to each conduces to the common good of each and of all. And that is the conception of rights that one ought to have. And I think that's very much the conception of rights that infuses the book. That is, we draw upon the idea that there are, in some sense, natural procedural rights to have the government operate in certain ways that make the law intelligible, comprehensible, and just to its subjects. And that is not a liberal conception necessarily in any way. You have an, an idea that you're promoting instead of maybe an originalist view of the Constitution. As the Constitution be able to protect us, conservatives feel that the Constitution can completely protect us um, if it's read uh, in a textual originalist way. And and you feel that, that the Constitution can no longer protect us, as you said, as we were starting. But you propose something different, which is common good constitutionalism. Yes. Yeah, so the larger project of, of which my participation in this book is just a part. I don't want to speak for my co-author, but my uh, larger project is this idea of common good constitutionalism. I'm working on another book about that right now. And the idea is, in some sense, to revive and adapt and translate the classical legal tradition for our modern conditions. So American law and Anglo-American law generally used to be drawing from a wellspring of classical legal thought that was ultimately stemmed from European Roman and canon law. Um, it was called the use commune. Uh, and we've fallen away from that participation surprisingly recently, just probably around the, the interwar period, the period between World War One and World War II. Uh, and our attempt is to revive this and to see how to understand the Constitution in that regard. Uh, we have, you know, started a blog called Eustidium, and there's another good one called Semi-Duplex. And there, there are a bunch of institutions that we're producing to try to pursue this agenda. The target, or one of the targets, is originalism. So the conservative legal movement, in my view, has become enthralled to this one particular theory, which is actually a liberal theory. It's a positivist theory called originalism. By positivist, I mean it says that the law is just whatever the will of the sovereign is. That is not the classical view. The classical view is that enacted laws like statutes and the Constitution are part of the law understood as the broader domain of justice, but they are not the whole of it. The broader domain of justice includes the natural law, it includes the use uh, gentium or the international law, and, and ultimately what it tries to do is to order law towards the common good in these upwards hierarchies that bring us to to man's uh, final ends. So that's the type of law that we're trying to reanimate, as it were. What is the common good for Catholics? Ultimately, that is a question for the Church, but proximately it is a question for the just authority of temporal rulers whose mandate and commission is to promote the common good of all, which is also, and I want to emphasize 
emphasizes the common good of each. This is a crucial insight in the Catholic tradition, which is that we shouldn't oppose the common good to our individual good. It is also our good to live in a society that um, is governed by the common good. Now, what is exactly the common good? Well, that's a long conversation. I draw upon an early modern tradition of Catholic political theory called the Ragione di Stato tradition, <laughs> which identifies the goods of peace, justice, abundance, and I think those can be updated to include health, safety, and security as the most immediate temporal goods. And those then yield principles of Catholic social thought, like subsidiarity, um, solidarity between classes, economic classes, and uh, other principles laid out in Quadragesimo on. And are liberals also concerned with the common good? Are they not trying to promote the common good in their own under their own lights, with the law, with the administrative state, with the courts? It is certainly true that they have a conception of the common good. So one of the claims I would want to make, and I think uh, many people want to make in the broader community that's interested in this, is it's impossible for any government to function without a conception of the common good, either expressly or implicitly. Mm -hmm. And any attempt to disclaim that is um, just shows a lack of self-awareness. However, as so often, the uh, liberal conceptions of the common good are a defective or imperfect or incomplete rendition of the church's um, understanding of the common good. So, for example, one liberal account, in one liberal account, the common good degenerates into aggregate utility. This is seen in the Benthamite utilitarian tradition, where we take your utility, my utility, someone else's utility, add them all up, and then try to have social policies that produce the greatest sum of those. And, and that is not the Catholic conception, which, as I said, there's no opportunity position between the individual good and, and the aggregate. It's the insight is that um, the good of the whole society is itself our good. And yet at the center of the liberal concept of the common good is personal autonomy. Yes, exactly. So in this Benthamite tradition I was talking about, the idea is that your utility is subjective. If you, as Bentham said, if you find pleasure in some silly game, that's just as good as in the, the greatest poetry that's ever been produced. If you find pleasure in some activity that we might think is morally debasing, that no one else has any standing to tell you so unless you're uh, actively inflicting some sort of harm on third parties. So yes, very much the liberal conception is that individuals decide upon their own good. This is the sort of thing that's a little bit tricky because, of course, Catholic social thought recognizes a domain in which it's perfectly legitimate for individuals to decide upon their own good. I mean, if we go get ice cream, the church doesn't tell me mm -hmm. whether I need to order chocolate or vanilla. Or, ro or romance, right? You get to choose your own spouse exactly. out of romantic exactly. love. Right. But what the church does not do is to make liberty into an idol. It says that liberty actually properly becomes itself when it is liberty to order oneself, one's family, and one's society towards the true good of human nature and of human flourishing. But in the liberal tradition, the idea is that if all the individual actors are promoting their own common, their own good, what they perceive as their own good or their own, what their will asks for, then in the whole society in aggregate will develop all these side benefits like peace and harmony and prosperity, the common good. Yes. And yes, that's, that's, like, a ma that's like magical man. thinking. That seems oh, to me magical. I'm sorry. That seems to me magical thinking where somehow each person being extremely selfish will 
result in good for the whole society. Absolutely. Uh, well said. This is the, the famous invisible hand theory that is most commonly associated with Adam Smith. What people forget is that Adam Smith uh, embedded the invisible hand in an explicitly providentialist account of the functioning of society. And in a funny way, that's sort of been lost and sort of hasn't because the modern devotees of the invisible hand theory really are faith-based. That is, they are animated by a deep providentialist faith that their theorems will pan out. All I can say is, I've, I've written elaborately about this elsewhere, there's no mechanism that ensures they will pan out, and there's no real evidence to think that they do pan out. I mean, do we think that in our society, people's flourishing or even subjective happiness is increased as markets have become more and more dominant? I see no evidence of that. Um, do we think that our free speech markets function well? <laughs> I mean, to promote rational public discourse, I mean, merely to state that proposition is is I think to see how risible it is. So the invisible hand rests on nothing but a, a misplaced faith. The invisible hand, I think, is rooted in a horror of purpose of rule by a legitimate public authority. It's an attempt to produce all the goods we want in a indirect emergent way without any public authority aiming directly at promoting those goods through law. And it's that horror of rule that I think is very close to this heart of the liberal tradition. So you mentioned that Adam, that the invisible hand that is somehow going to develop, deliver all these goods for us out of our own selfishness, that that is a providentialist um, idea and interpretation of what's going on, right? So that brings me to, so you wrote, liberalism's characteristic obscurantism is to conceal its own character as political ideology, as one of the great world religions. So how does it happen that an ideology dedicated to perfect individual freedom also creates a religious ambiance? And religion being characterized by norms and customs and, and binding, right? Obediences. Absolutely. A, a great French mind, a man named Louis Vuillot, who ran a ultramontanist papalist <laughs> journal called L'Univers in the 19th century, really figured this out. And he, in my view, identified this enduring social force, call it liberalism, call it the party of progress, call it what have you, whose creed is a vision, an ultimately uh, quasi-religious vision. It's based on a, a, a theory of salvation in which all men become fully liberated and thereby fully equal. And this creed is very much grips our elites today. Uh, in fact, you can see it played out in uh, various almost expressly religious ceremonies um, that we've seen even in recent like the, months. The kneeling, um, the kneeling. American streets. Like, or the kneeling in Congress of the, of the Democrats. Yes, exactly. That was very exactly. religious. Yes, very good example. So this stuff surrounds us. And, and the idea is, the point of these ceremonies is to constantly um, overcome some sort of oppression. The sacrament mm -hmm. or liturgy is of the overcoming of oppression. And when there's no oppression to be had, uh, some new 
oppression must be found. And that accounts for the relentless dynamism of this view that it's always needs to identify a new oppressor that it can overcome. So, so we're just looking at that down our horizon. When, when we, when we finally conquer racism, there'll be something else. Yes, exactly. I mean, we've seen it in in the sexual domain. First, we conquer marriage. Uh, <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> right, and the, and and then the boundaries are constantly ever expanding until. Uh, well, just in the past few days, the barrier of uh, pedophilia has been breached. Oh, that's right. That's uh, that's been that's been that barrier has been pretty porous for a while. I think. Yes, you're you're correct. Yeah, I think you pointed that out on Twitter. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, you know, if you take if you take the um, if you take the norms if you take the guardrails out from around sex, there's no natural barrier that exists. I think in the mind of perverted men. <laughs> why why should there be? What is there exactly? Mm-hmm. So, Professor, you have a very interesting life. You're a constitutional scholar, a conserv a European style conservative. Yes. At uh, one of the most liberal universities in the world. So I'm going to quote you back at you again. You say, liberal society celebrates toleration, diversity, and free inquiry, but in practice it features a spreading social, cultural, and ideological conformism. So my own daughter, who recently graduated from Harvard, told me that that's how it was at Harvard. (laughs) And she felt that very strongly. How do you uh, exist in that environment, and, and how safe are you? That is a tricky set of questions. I would say that uh, because I teach in a professional school and because I teach a relatively technical part of public law, which is administrative law, I do not face as many problems as I've heard colleagues face or uh, colleagues at other um, universities face. But I cannot imagine uh, teaching certain parts of constitutional law or criminal law or um, certain other subjects uh, without facing severe problems. Mm-hmm. But you're able, yeah, the, I guess the administrative state is not, uh, is, is a very technical thing. I can tell from the book. <laughs> I only got through, <laughs> I was only able to read the introduction. <laughs> well, it's funny. It's, 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 it's technical, but it's also opens up to the most profound constitutional issues, partly because if you look at our constitution, there's very little about the administrative state in it. Yet today, 98% of our public employees work in the administrative state in one way or another. And all of us are very bound by the administrative state. We, Our lives are, are structured by it. We, are, we, exactly. we encounter it every second of the day, it seems. Exactly. You go out of your house, uh, you're on a road that's been built by some uh, uh, probably state or local agency with federal, uh, with financial contributions from a federal agency. You get in your car with your driver's license that was given to you by an agency and so and it goes from there. I was taking a shower this morning and I looked out the window, there was a drone from the Florida Power and Light <laughs> outside my window. <laughs> what were they checking? I don't know. I was too shocked. Or something? Yeah, I don't know what they were checking, but it was the administrative state was flying a drone outside my shower window. <laughs> That's hilarious. In the future, the drones may be looking for Catholics. Who knows? <laughs> that, that doesn't seem so far away. So, Professor, you bring up Catholicism again. You are a famous convert. Do you mind if I ask you about your conversion? No, not at all. was uh, baptized as an Episcopalian, you know, the American version of Anglican. I sometimes have to explain, <laughs> sometimes <laughs> have to explain that. I know not to you, but just some people uh, don't know what that is. So, 
Let's see. Um, I was baptized in an Episcopalian uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I had a sort of Episcopalian-ish upbringing. I went to an Episcopalian boarding school and um, that sort of thing. Uh, and then um, at a certain point in my life, I was actually on the board of the Harvard Episcopalian chaplaincy. So I was like a lay member on that board. I think I was maybe even slated to be president of that board or I was president of that board. And um, through a series of intellectual discoveries and other events, I sort of came to realize I think that Catholicism might actually be true and I've got a real problem so there was this long weird period where I was sneaking into Catholic mass sitting in the back not of course <laughs> taking communion but just absorbing the vibe as they say did you um, well were you missing the good music and the, the <laughs> well see it's funny you say that because at a certain point one realizes that that the beautiful Episcopalian Anglican liturgy can in fact become a um, a, a kind of um, illusion that prevents people from seeing mm. into the truth. There can be a seduction that prevents people from doing what they need to do to find the truth. Um, so that's that's actually a very interesting side conversation to have. Anyway, so uh, then by the help of several uh, uh, priests who I had met, um, I decided that I could no longer avoid this this truth. Uh, and that I really had to choose. It's the sense of having to choose that John Henry Newman. I was going to say your your story yeah. sounds to me like John Henry Newman's very much um, an intellectual encounter with the truth. Yes, and then the heart. Um, I'm I sure. I also had a, a deeply personal encounter with the Blessed Virgin, which uh, I will talk about sometime. But um, so it wasn't strictly intellectual, but it was partly intellectual. Anyway, so at this point, I, I found that I could no longer avoid this, and I uh, had to go tell my fellow board members that of the Episcopal chaplaincy that I was becoming Catholic, and that resulted in several extremely <laughs> awkward <laughs> conversations. Um, at least you didn't have to leave your university, as John Henry Newman did. <laughs> Right. In that sense, uh, things are better. Yes. Um, I agree. But that uh, the England of the uh, anti-Catholic uh, legislation era is a pretty low bar. <laughs> we will soon we'll be thinking that that's that's uh, a paradise. <laughs> exactly. We'll be look. We'll be hoping we were living then, Professor. Um, our time is up, but. I, oh. I, I want to thank you very much for, for doing this, for conversations, for me. Um, it was really wonderful to speak to you, and I'm going to try to plow through the rest of the book. I have no legal background. <laughs> Please don't inflict that on yourself. <laughs> There's no need. It's really unnecessary. Well, you've written other books. Where can our listeners find um, your books? And uh, they're all The books are all on Amazon. Well, thank you very much, Professor, and uh, maybe you'll have, maybe you'll join us again one day. It would be a great pleasure. Thank you so much. It's very kind of you to have me. Welcome 
Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. We're excited to chat with the one and only Dr. Scott Hahn. He is the Father Michael Scanlon Professor of Biblical Theology at Franciscan University. He's also the founder and president of the St. Paul Center. Welcome to the show, Dr. Hahn. It's wonderful to be with you, Dr. Christie. Uh, you're a person that has had a tremendous impact on me, but also on so many people that I know. The ones that I know about are Catholics who are cradle Catholics, but had drifted away from their faith. And your books have helped them find that path back and that uh, that understanding that then leads to attachment and affection for the church. Well, I'm grateful for how our Lord has used me and sort of in awe and gratitude. <laughs> At the very end of 2020, I, I published this book entitled It Is Right and Just, Why the Future of Civilization Depends on True Religion. And to be honest, I thought it might be good timing to have it come out around the time of the election, but little did I know. Wow. Just <laughs> What a tumultuous period of time that would be. And it's it's a funny feeling I have that our Lord has uh, called us to do different tasks. And we have our own reasons and our own sense of timing, but he seems to have a better one. As I think about 2020, I came out with two books, one entitled Hope to Die that came immediately after COVID hit. And the subtitle of the book was The Christian Meaning of Death and the Resurrection of the Body. I thought, well, you know, it will come out in time for Easter when we celebrate the resurrection. Little did I I know how the pandemic would plunge the world into a solidarity of suffering, but also awaken people to a, a very strong, if not disordered fear of suffering and death after people try so hard not to ever even think about it. And then in the other half of uh, 2020, this unforgettable year, this book comes out in the aftermath. I mean, immediately days after the single most controversial election in our lifetimes and all of the political fallout that ensued. And so I feel as though Catholics recognize the need to engage the culture and be involved in politics, but so often we get caught up in the, the controversial issues that we start thinking like Americans strictly in terms of election cycles, whereas I'm finding as Catholics, what we also need to do is to think in terms of generations, think in terms of centuries as Mother Church has, has done for 2,000 years. And it isn't either or, it's both and. And that's sort of what went into the writing of this book, because on the one hand, you know, we have to deal with our fear of suffering like I treat in a book called Hope to Die. But in another sense, we also have to think long term from an eternal perspective and that's what I attempted to do in this second book that came out in 2020. It is right and just. It's sort of like a popular guide for helping Catholics to think in terms of the long haul. You got to plant the fall crop in order to have food throughout winter, but we also ought to think about planting trees and forests for our kids and our grandkids. I mean, trees we might never see, but in 30 or 40 or more years, our grandkids, and parenthetically, I should say, I've got six kids and 20 grandkids. <laughs> and, you know, two of our sons are in the seminary studying for the priesthood for the Diocese of Steubenville. So we certainly feel as though we have a lot of skin in the game. But when you think about planting forests that you might not see, you realize that, okay, our grandkids are going to need wood to build houses, furniture. So thinking politically, beyond election cycles and beyond the bipartisan rivalry that we just feel engulfed by, I, I begin by looking at Paul's statement in Philippians 3.20, where Paul reminds the Philippians that our citizenship is in heaven, which doesn't mean we're not Americans. It just means we have dual citizenship, both natural and supernatural. And then the second thing I look at is also this idea of the Great Commission, that Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. As he's getting ready to leave the disciples for the final time, he doesn't say all authority in heaven and earth will be given 
given to me at the end of time, but it has been. And so what follows? Well, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And I really notice that he doesn't say just go and make disciples in all nations, but make disciples of all nations. The word for disciple is a, a disciplined student. The word for nation is ethne. So it isn't necessarily the huge secular nation state that we're so accustomed to, but communities and ethnic groups, tribes, if you will, and nations also. And so we often aim too low when in fact, in the past, for the last 2,000 years, you can see how Catholic evangelization is not a sprint, it's more of a marathon. And you work with people in terms of their social structures. The thing that I emphasize a great deal is not only the Great Commission in thinking about making disciples of all ethnic, ethnic groups, nations, and he goes on to say, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is reminding his disciples, hey, look, the object of your hope is not just heaven, it's also so this missionary outreach, this mm -hmm. making faithful disciples who will become fruitful apostles, the object of Christian hope is not just difficult, but humanly speaking, it's impossible apart from God's supernatural aid. And so that's what baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit reminds us. Apart from the Father sending the Son to pour out the Holy Spirit, forget it. There's no way to do it. But on the other hand, with Christ having all authority, with him giving us the Holy Spirit, empowering us with the sacraments, he can then conclude by saying, teaching them to observe whatsoever I have commanded you. Now, when we compare the Catholic teaching with the two parties and their political platforms, we can wrangle all we want about the environment or pro-life, and I certainly don't see those two as equal, but I would also say that we don't just simply bind ourselves to either platform. We bind ourselves to our Lord, who's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, whether people thought of him as a candidate or not. I mean, whoever wins the White House, Christ is enthroned as the Lord of Lords and the president of the presidents for that matter, whether our leaders mm -hmm. know it or not. And these are just sort of like lining up the articles of the creed in such a way as to suddenly realize that, wow, a higher way of thinking about our own involvement as citizens is there hiding in plain view. And, you know, sometimes it gets so dark, it's hard to believe that there's a sun above the clouds. But I think this book is really designed to help American Catholics, but Catholics throughout the world kind of soar above the clouds and recognize, okay, there are serious problems that we need to address back there on earth, but we need a heavenly perspective, an eternal perspective, not only to grow in the virtue of hope, but also to instill that in other people so that we realize that when whatever happens in the next two years or the next four-year presidential election cycle, we have solid grounds for hope because it ultimately isn't about partisan politics. It's about the, the kingship and the lordship of Jesus Christ. And as Mother Teresa reminded us, it's all about faithfulness, not success. And so it's not simply a numbers game or actuarial probabilities. Well, what do we really expect? You know, when Jesus sent out fishermen and tax collectors to make disciples of all nations. He was asking them to go into the Roman Empire. Talk about a culture of death. What are the chances? Nil. And yet, mm -hmm. against all odds, over the course of generations and centuries, through the blood of the martyrs, but also through the fidelity of married Catholics showing this Roman Empire that what will last is holiness. And holiness is contagious, if it's real. And it was. And it can still be. In order, Dr. Hahn, to do what you suggest, which I think you're absolutely right, is important, and it's very obvious to me 
and I think I'm sure to most of our listeners, it is important to have a supernatural perspective, especially after the year that we have gone through and the punishing election cycle, and even the moments we're living through now, which which are very, very difficult politically, regardless of where we're standing politically. It is very true what you say, to regain a supernatural perspective should be our aim. But even then, when we look at things in a, in a sort of a transgenerational way and in the idea of salvation history and that we're a small moment in a long in a long uh, history of salvation, even then it gets a little daunting because, for instance, you start your book with a, a line from Marx that's uh, saying religion is the opium of the masses. Why do you start your book like that, which seems a little uh, gloomy? What are you trying to tell us about secularization and, and what it's done to us? Well, I want to set up a contrast because everybody is aware that Marxism is anything but dead. The Soviet Union is defunct, but Marxism is alive and well. And so if Marx called religion the opium of the masses, what I want to guide people to back themselves into is to recognize that Marxism is the opium of the elites, the secularists. In order to really get that clear and right, we have to look at what religion is, because by the time Marx is writing in the 19th century, religion has already been reduced to a private matter. It's not public. It's personal. It's not social. It's relativized. And so you pick and choose your religion like you might pick and choose the toppings Mm -hmm. on your pizza. Mm -hmm. And so what I want to do is to go back not just to scripture, but even to the pre-Christian philosophers like Cicero and Seneca, Romans, or for that matter, Plato and Aristotle, all four of them, apart from the Bible, recognized by natural reason, the natural moral law, the chief moral virtue is justice, giving to others what you owe them. And as, as Cicero points out, the highest form of the chief virtue of justice is not just transaction justice in the grocery store. It isn't even social justice in terms of equity and distribution. It's transcendent justice, what we owe our parents, what we owe our rulers, but above all, what we owe God. Religion for Cicero was the highest form of justice. And so when we say it is right and just, I'm not just lifting lines from the liturgy that are somewhat lame. No, these words are supercharged with power. Over the years, I've entitled several of my books, Drawing Lines from the Liturgy, Lord Have Mercy, Hail Holy Queen. But I think that we recognize that it is right and just to give him thanks and praise. It is our duty, it is our salvation, but not just privately as individuals who've chosen this religion, but rather in as much as God is the creator and the redeemer of all. And Christ basically is enthroned in heaven and he points to every square inch of this planet and says i've purchased that every person on earth Mm -hmm. he points to and says you're mine i i paid for your life with my blood and this is not just religious rhetoric it's not just catholic doctrine it's not just you know like doctrinal talking points this is the reality that is above the dark clouds that blind us from the sun and so religion if it is what aquinas says the vertus vertutum the virtue of virtues virtues are not just individual and private they're social and public. And as the Catechism points out in 1405, quoting Vatican II, lay people are called to sanctify the temporal order, not to sanitize it and clean it up, but to make it holy. And holiness is so often reduced to, I want to be a saint, which is awesome. But you don't say, I want to be a saint, but I don't care about my spouse. No, you you want your marriage to be holy, but not my kids. No, of course you want them, but not the neighbor's kids. No, you want the neighborhood to be holy, but not the town. No, you want the town to and not just Steubenville, but 
Ohio, and not just Ohio, but all 50 states, and not just our country, but all nations made disciples. And as Mother Teresa says, it's about faithfulness, not success. And so we've got to, got to recognize we have our marching orders. We will enjoy life more by not only not only by focusing, but also contemplating the sacred mysteries that we're so distracted from because of the political hubbub. You know, and it's important, but nothing will empower us to be more effective as American citizens and patriotic ones than to set our minds on heaven because we're going to be fearless. We're not going to be compromising our faith in order to get somebody elected. We might have to compromise in an election, but ultimately we recognize that we're under the Lord's of Jesus Christ. And once again, this is not just pietism. This is, you know, if we had a Geiger counter, there is more radioactive reality when it comes to truth of Christ. And so for our own sake, for our families, our neighbors, our towns and cities, we've got to really raise the bar and say, look, make us holy, really and truly, but make this holiness contagious. We want to be highly contagious Catholics and show people that there's life that's natural and human, and then there is life that is divine supernatural and eternal. And we're not making this stuff up. This is not uh, wishful thinking. But I, I feel as though we're back on our heels. We're so defensive. We don't recognize that indeed the best defense here would be the great offense that we call the new evangelization. And so if we if we really set our feet straight forward, I think we might be surprised by how much more God can do than what we think he can do. I have found, Dr. Hahn, that even in a very, very uh, intensely secular environment, which I find myself in often because I don't always sure. move in my in my uh, tight Catholic circles. People are looking for the transcendent. They're searching really hard. They've just they've forgotten where it is. They've forgotten that it's in church, that it's at the mass, that it's in in the sacraments that they had as children and that they've abandoned. I think that there's no greater gift that we can give people than a way out of that search that goes nowhere if we don't search in the right place. Dr. Christie, that is so profoundly stated. A thousand percent agreement. That search, that hunger for the transcendence, even the so-called new atheists or the nuns or the knots, you know, the fact is they still believe in right and wrong in the sense of justice and injustice. They're still looking for what is beautiful, even if they're relativists. And so if people still have a sense of right and wrong, just and unjust, they might have their image of God utterly effaced or distorted. But what we can show them is this longing for what is transcendently true and beautiful that goes beyond political power and, you know, ambition. This is deep in our hearts. Even if it's fast asleep, it needs to be awakened. And in the process, we're going to be able to show them that those longings of yours are traceable back to an origin. Mm -hmm. You know, it isn't just a dog that is hungering for steak that isn't there. No, he can see it. He can smell it, even if he doesn't know how to name it or find it because he's still on a tether. We've got to release people from the secularism that blinds them to the transcendent and in the process, stand back and watch the Holy Spirit pick up where we leave off because it isn't up to, it isn't simply up to my sophisticated argumentation, although we ought to refine that. It really is up to us doing what St. Paul did and that is the word of the cross, which will be folly to those who seek only worldly wisdom. It will be like political weakness to those who simply want coercive power. For the Greeks, it was foolishness. To the Jews, it was weakness. And yet, it's the it's the power and the wisdom of God. He prefers to do more with less. You know, his power is made perfect in our weakness. And it's hard to swallow. But in fact, once we recognize that as not just nice, but true and real and powerful, 
I think we're going to continue to work on our rhetorical skills in responding to people's questions and objections. But the more we're going to lead with the truth that Christ is the God-man, born in a manger, hanging on a cross, buried in a tomb, but he's not just alive and well now after the resurrection. He's ascended. He's enthroned. He is the Lord of Lords. He is the King of Kings. It is right and just to give him thanks and praise. And it's wrong and unjust not to, to the extent that we offer him thanks and praise, the Father will be beholden, practically obliged to reward our efforts with pouring out the spirit of the resurrected Lord upon all flesh. But I think we keep falling back on our own resources, assuming that if we kind of shelve those offensive mysteries that are so sacred but so unbelievable, take them off the shelf and defamiliarize yourselves, look at them through the eyes of unbelievers, and then we're going to value the gift of our faith as the single most precious gift we've ever been given, to believe in the unbelievable. We forget how unbelievable our beliefs really are to those apart, to those who don't have the gift of faith. But I think God the Father is longing to pour out the spirit of his Son, to give it to the atheists, the agnostics, the Marxists, the deconstructionists, the postmoderns. There isn't anybody he wants to withhold this from, but I feel as though as much as we think it's up to us, we slow it down. As much as we realize there is no way to communicate these mm-hmm. sacred mysteries, that the God-man, the creator of the universe was a zygote, an embryo, laid in a manger, hung on a cross, in our tabernacles and our patents. Wow. If we believe this, it's because it's true. But if it's true, it's because God doesn't just intervene in our world. He is more present in our world than we are. It's so true that we just have to let let the beauty of our faith do its own work because it's exactly. all we have to do is uncover it and, and show it. That was the great Dr. Scott Hahn talking about his latest book, It Is Right and Just, Why the Future of Civilization Depends on True Religion and Giving Us a Lot of Hope as we take this new year into our hands. And so thank you, Dr. Hahn. It's a joy to be with you, Dr. Christie. Keep up the great work. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy to have a chance to ponder with you the consequential conversation God wants to have with us this Sunday which will help us enter into the inner nature of our Christian calling. With the various convulsions and confusions happening in the United States during these days, it's urgent for Christians in general, and Catholics in particular, to live out our Christian vocations to the full and truly become the salt of the earth, the light of the world, and the leaven our beloved country needs. It's crucial for us to ponder with Jesus today the three main stages of growth in any Christian vocation so that we may mature to full stature in him and bring his light and his truth to a culture that needs it. The first stage in the divine drama is curiosity, wonder, and eventually a certain amazement. When St. John the Baptist saw Jesus walking by and said, Behold the Lamb of God, two of those who had been following and helping John, Andrew and another disciple, was almost certainly John the Evangelist, were obviously intrigued. As good Jews, they knew the significance of the Paschal Lamb from the Passover rite to free the Jews from slavery in Egypt, which they reenacted each year. When John pointed out Jesus is the Lamb of God, they couldn't help but be curious. So they did what curious people ordinarily do. They tried to find out more. Inquiring minds, after all, want to know. They began to follow Jesus, but they, being fishermen, were not particularly adept as private investigators. Jesus, aware that they were on his tail, turned around and asked them, What are you looking for? Caught off guard, they asked, Teacher, where are you staying? Jesus didn't respond with a direct answer to their small talk. He didn't want to meet them at the level of curiosity. On the other hand, he didn't want to kill that curiosity either by admitting what he would later say, that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. 
So he responded by trying to bring them from their curiosity to something higher. Come and see, he said. He invited them to follow him more closely and to spend time with him. That brings us to the second stage of the growth in our Christian vocation, to come to be with Jesus, to follow him to where he is. We call this stage discipleship. Disciple is the Greek word for student. We come to Jesus the master to learn from him. We come not just to learn facts or other information that we can ignore or forget later. We come to learn from him how to live, how to die, and how to live forever. At Jesus' invitation, Andrew and John came and saw his homeless mansion. St. John gives us a very interesting detail, which is one of the reasons why he was almost certainly the other disciple he named, because it would have been very hard for him to know it otherwise. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon, he wrote. This detail shows us how much of an impression that meeting with Jesus had in his life that he would never forget the precise time he met Jesus for the first time. It also shows us that this meeting wasn't brief. Scholars convincingly have shown, based on the text of St. John, that it was probably a Friday when this encounter happened. And once Jews reached about 4 p.m., the Sabbath would begin and travel would be prohibited. So it's likely that Andrew and John got to spend not just an hour or two with Jesus, but little more than a full day with him, peppering him with questions, answering his questions, laughing, praying, just being with him. Whatever happened over that length of time, they were changed. They were no longer curious hangers-on. They were believers. They were prepared out of faith to follow him. And when he would later visit them on the Sea of Galilee and call them from their boats, their nets, their fish, their families, their homes, they responded promptly. But because they really believed in him, they were not content to remain just at the level of discipleship. Andrew, as soon as the Sabbath was over, quickly moved to the third stage, the apostolate. Once he was able to travel, he ran to his brother Simon to announce to Simon the news any Jew would have longed for centuries to hear. We have found the Messiah. Andrew proclaimed that they had won the jackpot of jackpots and could not restrain themselves from sharing that news with those they loved. Then Andrew did something more. He brought his brother Simon to meet Jesus so that Simon could share that same joy. Little did Andrew know what the Lord would do with his brother. Little did he know that Jesus would change his brother's name to Cephas or Peter or Rock and later say, you are the rock on whom I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. All Andrew did was announce the good news to his brother and bring his brother to Jesus. Jesus did the rest. Little do we know what will happen when we announce Jesus to others and try to bring them to him. That's something we don't need to know because it's at the level of curiosity. We're compelled, though, to share Christ and let him work the same wonders in those we know as he has worked in us. Jesus wants all of us to pass through these three vocational stages. There are many people who remain, even into adulthood, at the level of fascination with Jesus. They're his admirers, not followers. Even Catholics who have received all the sacraments of initiation can still be at this first step of the ladder of faith. They know a lot about Jesus. He's clearly too famous to forget. And we recognize that his claims about heaven and hell and the importance of our choices on earth are too important to dismiss easily. So we sort of follow Jesus, but do so at a distance, going through the motions, kind of hedging our bets. We'll come to Mass, perhaps. We'll receive Holy Communion. We'll say some prayers. But we won't really center our life around listening to the Lord, speaking to us in prayer, and calling us to change. We'll be good to our neighbor and support the church, but without really putting our full hearts into it. To people at this vocational stage, Jesus says to us, full of tenderness, what are you looking for? He invites us to come and see, to enter into his life more deeply. He tells us, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and beckons us to follow. 
He wants all of us who are at this stage to be upgraded to the status of true disciples, not just on the outside, but on the inside. Discipleship is the second stage. It involves following Jesus not at a distance, but up close. Like with Saints Andrew and John, it means being with Jesus and following him where he wants to lead. It means treating him not just as someone or something that's important in our life, but as God, as the single most important reality of our existence, for whom we'll sacrifice everything else if necessary. A true disciple of the Lord will live a life of deep prayer, will make Mass the source and summit of his or her existence, will seek to be a good student, sitting at the feet of the Master and pondering his words in sacred scripture and trying to act on them, will love those who the Lord loves and is called into his family, the Church. Are you at the stage of discipleship? Is your relationship with Jesus the most defining reality of your life? If you were to call you today to follow him more intimately, to make a major change in your life, are you prepared because of that relationship to leave other things behind, even everything, to follow in his footsteps? Jesus wishes to give us all the grace we need to live at this level. But as important as this is, it's not enough. Once we recognize the beauty of the life of true discipleship with Jesus, we naturally want to share it with all those we love. Like St. Andrew, true disciples can't stop themselves from bursting out to all those around them. We have won the lottery. We have found the Messiah. We have encountered God and his salvation. Like St. Paul, we will say, woe to me if I don't preach this gospel. If we love Jesus, we will naturally want to spread love of him to others. We'll also want to bring others to him so that they can experience the same joy we have found. Jesus, of course, could have stayed on earth until the end of time and proclaimed the gospel himself to every man and woman. But he loved us enough and trusted us enough that he wanted us to share in his joy-filled mission of the salvation of the world. Today, he wants to stoke in us a desire for the full flourishing of the Christian vocation to come to Jesus and be sent out by Jesus, to be a holy disciple and an ardent apostle. He wants to bring that to completion on Sunday. This Sunday, whether out of curiosity or discipleship, Jesus wants us to follow him to his house on earth where he stays where he speaks to us, feeds us, and renews us. He turns to us and asks, what are you looking for? He wants to help us to seek him, find him, love him, share his life, and bring others into communion with him. As we prepare on Sunday to behold and receive the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, we ask for his help to become like John the Baptist and Andrew, so that at the end of the celebration of the Christian Sabbath, filled with the fire of the Holy Spirit, we will go out to find those we love and bring them to this great news personified. We have indeed found the Messiah and more than the Messiah. At a time when our country needs him more than ever, let us make it our top priority to follow him all the way, to bring him to others, and to bring others to him. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com. You can read his homilies there and also listen to the audio. You can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. Catch us every Saturday at 5 p.m. on your EWTN local affiliate or check us out at thecatholicassociation.org slash podcast.